Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Book Network's Animal Studies channel. My name is Kyle Johansson, and I recently became a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Dr. Joshua Duclo. Josh is an instructor of humanities and philosophy at St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, and we're going to be discussing his book, Wilderness, Morality, and Value, which was published earlier this year by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, So could you please tell us a little bit about yourself, such as where you're from, what topics you work on, or anything else you think the listeners might want to know about you? Sure. Uh, I actually grew up in New Hampshire, where I'm now living and working. Uh, I I went to school uh, for college down in Connecticut, and then uh, did some graduate school in Chicago, and then ultimately did my PhD at Boston University, and over the years lived in a variety of places. Uh, I lived in India, France, the Czech Republic, uh, but um, New England and specifically New Hampshire are our home. Okay, yeah, you're. Um, I, I guess you're pretty well traveled. In fact, um, one thing that um, is neat about you that maybe people will like to know is that you were recently in the Ukraine doing um, some some uh, volunteer teaching. Um, uh, how, how how was that? It, it was a valuable experience. It was a more disturbing experience uh, than I than I had anticipated, but I'm I'm glad I went. I was able to um, connect with a school in Lviv, Ukraine, and and made an arrangement that if they could organize students who weren't able to meet their tuition and set up some classes, I'd be happy to come over and do primarily language instruction with them. But they also had asked if I would organize a series of philosophy seminars for their advanced students. So it was a special opportunity, and I was. Uh, grateful to uh, be able to help out a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful that you did that. Um, And I'm also happy that uh, you were able to get a bit of um, financial support because going to Ukraine and spending some time there and doing all this uh, is expensive. And um, I know you you got a bit of help from from friends and family and whatnot. So that's Uh, good. uh, um, But primarily from... um... Uh, friends and other philosophers, I, I put mm-hmm. out a request for anyone who was who was able to make uh, any sort of donation, $20, $15, anything, and um, a whole group of, of uh, philosophers, whether they were teachers or fellow graduate students or, or people I've met at conferences, um, were extremely generous in, in, in making donations and, and helping me get over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so I, I, another uh, thing that I think is neat about you, or in my opinion, it's neat. Um, before... Um, uh, inviting you for this interview. Um, I'd never uh, uh, bothered to learn anything about St. Paul's School. Um, and when I uh, uh, scheduled an interview with, with you, I thought, I thought I'd look into the, uh, the place that you work. And uh, St. Paul's School sounds like a pretty unique place to work. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a boarding school and also a, a prep school. Um, but like, so I think um, tuition there for students is like $62,000 a year. So it, it's, it's a very expensive prep school. Um, what's it like, like working at a place uh, like this, um, it's it's probably a pretty pretty different working there than working at um, lots of lots of educational institutions. Yeah, so I've I've taught um, high school for a number of years, and I taught at at the university level as well. And in, in some ways, it's 
it's similar. In some ways, it's it's very different. And when I've applied for these various jobs, I, I always honestly say the same thing in interviews, which is I don't particularly care if the students are 16 or, or 19. It, it doesn't doesn't make much much difference to me. Um, in some ways, teaching is teaching. But yeah, the, these schools are uh, a unique environment. St. Saint, Saint Paul's is is one of the old American uh, prestigious boarding schools. It's it's a it's a beautiful campus on over 2,000 acres of of uh, New England woodlands. Uh, I get to teach some very very talented, motivated students, and uh, I get to do other things as well, like be the head coach of a JV soccer team. Um, so I, uh, I balance out teaching teaching philosophy with uh, teaching people how to take corner kicks, which <laughs> I actually quite enjoy. Right. Okay. It sounds like it's it's a pretty work intensive job. I think I, I looked up that you are working. Is it six days six days a week, basically like full time six days a week kind of thing? Yeah, six days a week at a at, at a minimum. The teaching schedule is six days a week. We have classes uh, Monday Monday through Saturday. So um, come coming to this situation from from teaching college even if you're teaching a a 44 or 55 the the workload here is fairly intense it's it's of a different kind you know there there are no research demands on me here there's no there's no requirements to publish so anything like that is you just do it because you want to or because you're you're uh, you're particularly motivated so it's um it it's a different set of work demands um having having been in both worlds i would never say one is is more rigorous than the other it's just a different set of demands okay okay yeah that's interesting um, okay. Well, let, uh, as interesting as your life is, um, we're here to talk about your book and not, not really about your life. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's get into the book. Um, the fir- first thing is just, well, why did you decide to, to write this book in the first place? I think I've been thinking through, um, philosophical questions about nature and the environment since I was a kid. I, I grew up in New Hampshire and in, in fairly rural New Hampshire, spent a lot of time in the woods and in the mountains. And then during graduate school, uh, I ended up with a part-time job working as an, an outdoor guide, a sort of mountain guide for a, a company that that did outdoor adventures. So I would lead these outdoor adventure trips in the mountains uh, with various clients, mostly in the United States, but sometimes in the Alps, sometimes in the in the Himalayas. So, you know, doing that sort of part-time work as a as an outdoor guide or a wilderness guide, and then also working on a PhD in philosophy, the two worlds were always colliding in my head, and and I was always sort of thinking philosophically about human nature relations and the meaning of wilderness, the function of wilderness, the status of plants and animals, and um, you know, when 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 you're a philosopher and something's not quite clear in your own head, you you tend to think more about it, and then you dip into the literature. And there, I mean, there's fantastic literature on this stuff. I, I got very interested in, in writers like Dale Jameson and Holmes Ralston, Mark Sagoff, Baird Calicott, Katie McShane, um, Claire Palmer. I, you know, I could go go on and on and and learned an enormous amount. But I, I found a lot of the literature on wilderness somewhat unsatisfying. That whatever whatever I was seeing there wasn't quite resolving the confusions. I had or, or getting at the questions that I felt were, were particularly important. So at that point, you you have the beginning of a project. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this later, I guess. But um, it's interesting that um, you look at wilderness the way you do. And so we'll, we'll talk about wild animal welfare later on. But um, it's, it's interesting that you, that philosophically, you're, you're very interested in wild animal welfare, and yet you are yourself... Um, a, 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 a wilderness lover, right? You, you, you have spent so much time in the wilderness yourself. It's a big part of, um, I guess, who you are and um, uh, and what you do. Um, for and it has been for a long time. Um, 
I thought that I thought that was just an interesting fact about you. Um, I, I, I've not like I've surveyed the people who work on wild animal welfare and found out how likely they are to be people who who climb mountains and uh, go on long hiking trips and things like that. But um, uh, yeah, 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 I think you're right. I mean, I've I've had that comment from a few people, and I and I agree. Um, a number of people have said it's that they're very surprised that this book came out of me, <laughs> whether they particularly like the book or not, or whether I happen to be right or wrong about any any individual claim. And um, I, you know, p- parts of the book make me a bit uncomfortable, um, and I'm not I'm not quite sure how I feel about some of the conclusions that that I've reached. Yeah. Okay, well, and, and, we'll, and we'll talk about those conclusions um, uh, this, during this interview. Okay, so um, perhaps the most important concept in your book is the concept of wilderness, or the most important concept to your book. Um, and, and specifically, what you have in mind is what you call wilderness as wilderness. Um, can you explain what you mean by wilderness as wilderness? And can you also explain its relationship with the concept of nature? Sure. This was one of the things that I I felt the stuff I was seeing in the literature just wasn't quite satisfying me. So a lot of debates about the the function or the value of wilderness, to me, seem to really miss the mark. Um, They often aren't really debates about wilderness itself, or as I put it, wilderness as wilderness. They, They tend to be debates about the importance of preserving natural resources that you might find in wilderness, like timber or, or water, or maybe um, debates about the ability of nature to provide enriching aesthetic experiences. But in a lot of these conversations, it's it's just often not noticed that these experiences or these goods in, in, in principle really could come from another source and that wilderness, whatever wilderness turns out to be, however you finally want to want to analyze it in these conversations is really seen as a, as a means to an end, as um, you know, just a, a vehicle for the delivery of some other good. And I, I completely agree. Wilderness has abundant instrumental value. I don't know uh, anyone who would <laughs> try to maintain the, the opposite. But you know, in, in political philosophy, people who are interested in, in democracy – I think it's pretty common to say, look, democracy has various instrumental values, but a number of theorists say it also has certain intrinsic values. And even if democracy isn't as good as some other system in getting us this or that um, instrumental good, there's still some just inherent value to democracy itself. And that's kind of what I wanted to try to get at with wilderness. What exactly is it? And, and can we say that wilderness as wilderness possesses some distinct value? Okay, right. Yeah, so you're interested in the in the intrinsic value of wilderness. Um, yeah, and and to right. get at that, you uh, the first step is you've got to be able to say what wilderness is. You have to have some working understanding of this thing if we're going to try and understand whether it has a distinct value. Okay. Um, and and you think that yeah, you think wilderness has a pretty close relationship with the concept of nature. Um, yeah. Um, so. Uh, on the one hand, I have I have no problem if people want to stipulate that they're going to use the terms wilderness and, and nature interchangeably. So Bill McKibben in, in The End of Nature, uh, his, his famous book, um, I think he's essentially talking about what I'm talking about when I say wilderness. So I, I, I don't have too much of a problem with that. But nature and natural are are really loaded terms in philosophy, and I, I found it almost impossible to use these terms in the context of philosophy without getting immediate interruptions or causing confusion and then just leading to these unhelpful disagreements. So for, for the book I was writing, there was a kind of philosophical efficiency to talking about wilderness, but also I, I was engaging with, you know, at a minimum sort of 30 years of 
of philosophical literature, specifically also talking about wilderness, using the term wilderness. As for the distinction, um, you know, you could, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to say that the house plant you have in your living room uh, is part of nature. I don't think it makes much sense to say that it's part of the wilderness. So in, in, in the book, I try and say, look, this is a vague concept. We can understand it's a vague concept that's going to get fuzzy at the edges, but there is still a philosophically important distinction that can be made. And if we don't make it, it actually gets very hard to have some important moral conversations. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. Um, well, I, I guess the next question will will give you a chance to say a bit more about how you understand the, the concept of wilderness. Um, in particular, I'm, I'm wondering um, uh, what you mean when you when you say that um, we, we might go about either preserving or reducing wilderness, because you talk about both those things in the book, preser- preservation of wilderness and also the possibility of reducing wilderness. Um, at first glance, reducing wilderness seems synonymous with habitat destruction. It kind of just sounds like that's that's what that would have to mean. But you're, you're, that's not what you're talking about in your book. You don't have habitat destruction in mind. No, I'm certainly not advocating habitat destruction. Um, I mean, it, it may the reduction of wilderness might might be done in a way that that results in habitat destruction, but it but it need not be, and that's one of the things I was trying to bring out. So the way the way I understand wilderness, first, I, I try to sort of revive or, or defend just the um, the Wilderness Act definition. Um, and I, I won't read the whole thing there, but that's the, the definition that's sort of been under attack for, for 30 years with all these various objections. But when I say wilderness, I mean something like a condition of the natural world distinguished by a relative absence of human activity, past or present, intentional or unintentional, conspicuous or inconspicuous. And that to me, I, that's just sort of a, a, um, a quick way to explain what is laid out in the U.S. Wilderness Act definition. Untrammeled land, land where human beings are visitors who do not remain, that uh, you preserve the world uh, as as human beings initially found it. So that's that's what I'm talking about. So when it gets to preserving or reducing, we're really talking about a condition of the natural world. So preserving wilderness would be preserving the natural world uh, or conditions of the natural world distinguished by a relative absence of human activity. So to give um, maybe some examples of that, if if there's no further human habitation or activity or influence in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, then I think we could say wilderness will be preserved there. But if five new resorts go up, then wilderness is going to be diminished uh, or reduced, but it wouldn't be eliminated necessarily. And then if we said that all human habitation and all human activity and influence is going to cease in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, then in some sense, wilderness will have been enhanced when you just mean something like a condition of the natural world distinguished by relative absence of human activity. And it's important for me to point out that I'm not making any kind of evaluative statements here at all. I I take these just to be be, um, statements of fact. So whether preservation, reduction, or elimination is is good or bad and why is going to be a completely different question. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Thanks. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I guess given given the way you understand wilderness, um, human activity will tend to reduce the amount of wilderness uh, that there is. So if you go into something that we would call wilderness, um, uh, you know, a relatively uninfluenced ecosystem, and human beings start um, doing things, anything really, in, in that ecosystem that affects um, the env- that ecosystem's environment, um, that will tend to reduce wilderness. I, I wonder if, if human behavior can sometimes increase wilderness. Um, is that is that like conceptually impossible? Do you think, or or would some human behavior 
plausibly be thought to increase wilderness? That's that's a great question, and I felt like I had bitten off enough in the book that I didn't I didn't get into that. But it, it's a really good question. It's a really important question. It gets into the questions about rewilding, whether this conceptually makes any sense, and then whether whether we think it's a good idea to engage in rewilding or not. But yeah, the way the way I've understood it, no human activity is going to diminish wilderness. And most people just take that as an evaluative claim, like, oh, so human activity is bad. Human activity is hurting nature. But that's that's not what I'm saying at all. So to get back to your point about habitats, it's it's completely possible that, that human activity, while diminishing the wilderness conditions of a certain natural area, might actually result in habitat restoration that tends to be beneficial for the welfare of non-human animals living there. So, so human activity might improve habitats. We're just so used to thinking of human activity or, or human interference in the natural world as being being disastrous or, or self-interested or short-sighted. And it usually has been. But there's nothing in principle that, that says that needs to be the case. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, look, so b- before we get into your uh, critique of wilderness preservation, um, because that's that's a big part of your book, uh, it's worth discussing your defense of the claim that, that wilderness exists. Um, can, can you explain why some scholars have challenged the existence of wilderness and, and why you think that they're wrong? Yeah, absolutely. And you'll have to, I, I could go on about this for quite a while. So you'll have to let me know if, if, if we've said enough and if it's, if it's time to move on. Uh, in, in kind of surveying the literature, I identified five distinct challenges, and then there certainly could be, could be more. But I, I came up with five, five challenges just to the idea of wilderness. Uh, I call them the empirical, the cultural or the ethnic or the racial, the philosophical, the social constructivist, and the environmental or political. And I, and I really just don't find any of them convincing, which is not to say I think they're all entirely wrong. I think a lot of them make uh, cogent, in, in some cases, self-evident points. I just don't think they're in any way, um, they impede on the idea of wilderness. So the, the empirical objection, this is someone like, like McKibben, who thinks nature no longer exists. There's nothing left that could be called wilderness because humans have touched, spoiled, put our fingerprints on on everything. There's just nothing left that could fall into this category. Um, you know, I think Dale Jameson's pretty good on this one, saying that this is just trivially false in certain ways. We can we can find many areas of the earth and, and then certainly the cosmos where human fingerprints are not... Uh, presence or the the influence of human activity is not yet present. But it also just ignores the vagueness of the term. It, it might be true that an absolute wilderness is very hard to come by these days, but um, gates of the Arctic National Park, for for example, or, or, or wilderness area, it's, it's definitely wilderness to a higher degree than Yellowstone, which is going to be wilderness to a higher degree than Central Park, which is actually going to be wilderness to a higher degree than, than LaGuardia Airport. So uh, I I don't. I just don't see much force in that. That's saying empirically, there's nothing that could ever um, fit the referent of of wilderness as I described it. For the for the cultural, ethnic, or racial objection, the objection here isn't so much that that wilderness doesn't exist. It's that a number of people have 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 found the term offensive and demeaning. And and this this I need to be careful with this one because it's a really important point that has something valuable in it. Historically, it often has been the case that certain groups of people have identified certain areas as wildernesses, either to impugn the people who are already living there to say, "Look at these people; they couldn't develop civilization, they couldn't, um, they 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 couldn't advance." And and you know, this was quite common with with uh, 
Europeans arriving in in North America and Central America and South America. Um, but there's there's a, a big genetic fallacy that that seems seems to happen here. A lot of people point out that this term wilderness seems to have been invented by um, by white Europeans or white Americans, and therefore uh, it only applies to them, or or it couldn't possibly apply anywhere else. And that that just doesn't quite follow. It's also possible to just just point out that certain areas do seem to be wilderness to a greater degree without then making a value judgment about the people applying the term or the people living in the areas that another group considers wilderness. I mean, it's it should it should be plain to everyone today that North America was not some absolute pristine untouched wilderness prior to the arrival of Columbus. That's that's a silly fiction. But it should also be true and and Holmes Ralston, among among others, have pointed this out, that North America was certainly wilderness to a far higher degree and greater extent than than Europe in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. So so I don't I don't think pointing out the the sometimes nefarious and and racist way that the term has been applied by some groups is a good reason to reject the idea of wilderness as itself intrinsically um, racist or culturally offensive. The uh, and, and please tell me if I'm going to on uh, too long about any of this. I'll I'll make these other ones quick. The, the philosophical objection kind of says that there's this untenable human nature divide. That there's this silly metaphysics going on. That it's not possible to separate humanity from from uh, from nature. We couldn't ever explain why one state of affairs is called natural and the other is artificial. Um, I don't think there's any complex metaphysics involved in this. I I, uh, I think it's very easy to tell why the Chamonix Valley is natural and why the computer that I'm using to speak with you right now is called artificial. And I guess I'd want to know if someone thinks that's not a distinction that's tenable, I'd love to know what distinction short of absolute strict logical necessity, you know, P and not P is going to be tenable. Like there's just, it's going to be hard to talk about anything. Like, can we not make distinctions between cats and dogs at that point? Um, So I don't think there's any complex metaphysics in talking about the, the natural world or wilderness and and the human world or artifacts and nature social constructivism uh, you know is a view that that thinks wilderness itself is socially constructed that this is this is an idea and it comes out of a, a certain way of thinking and that no wilderness existed until human beings formed the concept of wilderness and then applied it to certain areas of the world um, I think there's an uncontroversial point here that um, Perhaps no one would have talked about wilderness until the idea arose, and perhaps you need certain historical and social conditions for people to be even interested in identifying areas of the world like that. But to think that the concept is responsible for the creation of the entity <laughs> makes 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 a fairly large mistake, I think. Uh, and then the, the the last one is this environmental political objection, and and this one doesn't really say that wilderness doesn't exist. This is where environmental activism tends to maybe tread on environmental philosophy a little bit in ways that are not always helpful, that a number of writers will point out, look, all this environmental philosophy, pe- people like me, and I don't know, perhaps people like you sitting around talking about this stuff, we're wasting our time. Nothing we're saying right now is actually getting out there and helping save wilderness or or, or, or doing our bit for the polar bears or um, you know, preserving endangered species, that it's this is kind of a waste of time. Now, I'll just concede that that's true if, if, if people want. I don't think it is true, but we could we could concede that it is. It just fails to make a distinction between environmental philosophy and environmental activism. 
um, you know, some someone can do brilliant political philosophy, and it may not solve the most pressing problem of the electoral college, uh, but but it doesn't mean they're not doing something distinct, and that what they're doing doesn't have a distinct kind of value. So those were the five uh, five, five objections that I tried to push past in order to just have the conversations I wanted to have. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, and those objections are sufficiently heterogeneous that, like, summarizing what you just said is is a little tricky. But um, I think at least at least some some of your response could be summarized as being something like, um, "Look, uh, wilderness is a scalar concept instead of a binary concept. We can talk about things as being more or less wild, um, and and that's perfectly sensible." And then also, um, although a lot of people treat wilderness as a morally loaded, evaluative concept. Um, we don't need to. Uh, we don't, uh, and and that you, you need a separate argument for why you ought to treat it that way. And once we sort of don't treat it as a morally loaded, evaluative concept, some of the difficulties with it um, seem to go away. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so your your critique of wilderness preservation, um, which which we're not get into, uh, it's 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 largely based on considerations of wild animal welfare, or or alternatively, um, wild animal suffering. Um, as you note in your book, this critique, or, or what you call the objection from welfare, is interesting in part because environmentalists normally invoke wild animal welfare in support of wilderness preservation. Uh, can you explain uh, the importance of wild animal welfare for proponents of wilderness preservation, for people who are in favor of wilderness preservation, uh, as, as well as why you think uh, considerations of wild animal welfare are actually in tension with wilderness preservation? I, I, I think I really started thinking about this more specifically when I got a, a fundraising letter from the, uh, it might've been the Nature Conservancy and, and they were, you know, appealing for funds and there was a picture of a sad, skinny polar bear. And the, the essence of the letter was, look, if you care about animals and you care about their welfare, and if you want to help this polar bear and other polar bears like it and other animals in the same situation, we've got to preserve wilderness. And now, I will completely agree that a base condition for faring well is existing. It's continuing to live. So to the extent that preserving wilderness preserves the conditions necessary for the continued exa- uh, existence and uh, and even the flourishing of, of wild animals, then you can say that the preservation of, of, of wilderness is directly linked to the, to the welfare of, of animals. And if you're thinking that the destruction of wilderness, if you're if you're imagining bulldozers going in and just raising forests or strip mining or or uh, toxic sludge, uh, you know, dripping into the rainforest or or something like that, it seems pretty clear that destroying or eliminating the wilderness in that way is going to have a negative impact on on the welfare of animals. But there's a real tension here, and and the tension is that. Animals rarely fare well in in the wilderness. So, if we're understanding wilderness as a as a kind of state of nature, then the overwhelming majority of wild animals are going to lead lives that are more nasty, brutish, and short than anything Hobbes ever could have envisioned for humans. It's starvation, it's disease, it's predation, it's exposure, it's parasitism. And for the very, very, very small percentage of wild animals that make it past their first year, existence is is a relentless and pitiless attempt to avoid some kind of gruesome death. And this is not... um, I mean, again, I take this just to be a factual claim. There's not yet any any value judgment involved in any of this, and every good biologist from from Darwin through through Dawkins is is crystal clear 
on this fact. So animals don't tend to do well in the wilderness. But I think we have this false dichotomy set up where the only interference, if we imagine that the only interference humans are making in wilderness is to cut down forests or strip mine or, 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 or make, make the natural world so unlivable that wild animals can't even exist, then yeah, it, it would make sense to say that we're making things worse for them. But it's very different to say that simply preserving wilderness as it is, is, is creating, um, creating the conditions where animals are going to fare particularly well, if that mm-hmm. makes some sense. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, it, it, it definitely does. Um, uh, I'm very, I'm very interested in this topic myself too. Um, wild animal welfare. Um, I, I'm out of curiosity. Um, how, how bad do you think the situation is for wild animals? Um, because I, I, I mean, you, you throughout the book, you talk about various sources of suffering in the wilderness and you, you indicate that you think wild animals are in a pretty bad situation. Um, I don't know if you ever, ever like say anything specific about how bad you think it is. So, I mean, some, some people who are working on this, uh, topic, they think that, um, the situation in, in the wilderness is so bad that um, the lives of, of wild animals are, are net negative. Um, and th- and some, I think that's partly supposed to be a matter of um, most individual wild animals having net negative lives, understood as lives where uh, the amount of negative experience um, exceeds the amount of positive experience. Um, and it's also, I think, a, a lot of people who say this think that if you take all of those animals who are living net negative lives and you um, aggregate that ill fare um, and try to come up with an overall assessment of average welfare or or aggregate welfare in um, in nature, it's going to turn out that those animals who are living bad lives are outweighing outweighing the good lives of whichever animals happen to live good lives, which are presumably a small minority. Um, but yeah, so these these sorts of assessments are are um, really quite bleak. I'm w- I'm wondering if you think if you're if you're if you think that's right, if you if you have an equally bleak assessment. I think what you've just said is entirely plausible. And, and I, I do cite some specific things. I, d- I don't do that kind of, of careful analysis I- in the book, but uh, you know, relying on data from, from scientists. And, and this really is an empirical question. I mean, then, then philosophers can do various analyses with it. But if you want to figure out how much any individual animal or a group of animals or a species is, is suffering, we need to be careful not to just do armchair speculation and, and actually figure it out. I mean, there's interesting studies just with with stress hormones, uh, which is one of the good indicators of of, of, of happiness. And it, it, it turns out wild animals have far higher concentrations of these. And there's very good reason for that, that if you were kind of a, a relaxed, very calm guinea pig out in the wild, you're not going to last very long. Um, but it's also equally true that living a life where your stress ho- hormones are constantly five times higher than your domestic counterpart doesn't seem like a particularly pleasant sort of life. So, so what you've just said, I think, is entirely plausible. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's correct that it, it may well be the case that the issue of wild animal suffering, far from being an unimportant moral problem, could actually be the most overwhelming, significant moral problem uh, that uh, of which of which we're aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which uh, I'm sure strikes some people as being terribly counterintuitive, but I, I myself find it hard to resist that conclusion. Um, and uh, we, we could keep talking about that long for for a longer period yeah. of time. I think. Um, or, oh, let sorry, me just revise that. I just want to revise yeah, yeah. that quickly. I guess I, I I maybe went a bit too far. Whether you think it's the most pressing moral problem becomes a, a very different issue. But the scale of wild animal suffering it, it seems almost inescapable to me that it dwarfs anything else. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Especially once you start. So, um, uh, wild animal suffering is associated with the uh, the effect of altruism movement. It's a in addition to being a topic in applied ethics, it's also a, a cause area within the the effective altruism movement. And um, people working in effective altruism are increasingly um, interested in a view called long-termism, which uh, holds that we should be looking, um, we should be giving quite a lot of weight to the interests, if, 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 if not just far more weight to the interests of people who don't yet exist, because uh, they are far, far more numerous than the people who do exist. Um, like people in the past, presumably, they don't have any moral significance because they they don't have interests, um, they're, they're dead. Um, people who currently exist have interests, for sure. But people who will exist in the future also have an interest in living a good life. And the people who will exist in the future are going to, there's going to be many, many orders of magnitude, more than, more of them than, than of us. They're going to outnumber us by quite a bit, just assuming that the future is, is long and that we don't, we don't uh, kill ourselves with nuclear war or what have you. Um, but, but it seems like, yeah, once, especially once you start thinking about that in, with respect to animals, um, there's going to be lots of wild animals in the future, like huge numbers, <laughs> huge, huge numbers of them. And, uh, so yeah, if we look at existing wild animals, there's huge, they're, they're very, very populous, I think. Um, I've seen estimates that suggest that there's about something somewhere along the lines of a trillion wild terrestrial vertebrates in existence. But then especially when we start thinking about all the future animals that there'll be, um, it's just uh, we're looking at numbers that are unlike anything you've, you anyone has ever thought about, really. And this and this concern or at least interest in the the ceaseless transgenerational suffering of of animals in the natural world has certainly not escaped previous generations of philosophers. There's a there's a vivid passage in uh, from from Schopenhauer, where he's reporting something that he must have heard about someone someone uh, coming upon a beach in Indonesia, and it's just these dead turtles and skeletons, and then there's the tigers that relentlessly come and eat the turtles, and then the tigers themselves are eaten. eaten and, and Schopenhauer says it's just ceaseless and generation after generation. And and his response to this was, "My my God, the the universe is bleak and it's just endless suffering." So yeah, I I, I, I do tend to agree with you that that there's a there's a, there's a factual element to this that really does seem undeniable. Now, what analysis and then what course of action we ought to take in response becomes a very complicated, different sort of question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, although uh, I think maybe one thing I note is I'm not sure how much past thinkers, and by past I mean um, uh, cla- you know classical thinkers and uh, uh, people people who are writing prior to the uh, 20th century. Um, I'm, I, I I think they probably didn't have as much appreciation for the implications of population dynamics for for wild animal welfare. That's something that's a little more recent where. People started thinking about reproduction and the implications of, particularly, our strategist reproduction for for wild animal welfare. Um, uh, yeah, 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 you're you're absolutely right about that. I was I was just thinking about. I don't think people have been unaware of of the scope and scale of suffering. They've just either tended to ignore it or downplay it, yeah. um, or or excuse it in in various ways. But no, you're you're completely right about the new discussions about about population dynamics. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Well, let's uh, let's keep going. So, um, I, I was hoping I was hoping you could explain um, uh, some of your thoughts about ecocentrism, ecocentrism, and biocentrism. Um, you you critique these views in your in your book, um, but in addition to critique in addition to critiquing them, you also indicate that if they turned out to be true, uh, they would actually support the objection from welfare. Um, and and it initially seems like maybe they they would actually 
be maybe could be used to critique the the objection from welfare. But you but you think they so they support the objection from welfare? I was I was hoping you could explain that and maybe also say what what those views are, what ecocentrism and biocentrism um, are. Yeah, I, I do think they would actually have that that result. So I I end up for a variety of reasons, and I won't recapitulate the arguments here, but defending a, a version of sentientism. And so one quick response, if you're looking to respond or, or, or reject what I'm saying, you might say, well, you're just wrong. We, you got to take a biocentrist ethic or you got to take an ecocentrist ethic. So if, if biocentrism, and I got to be careful here, there's a whole variety of different biocentrists, but generally speaking, this is a claim that Perhaps only uh, are all and, and maybe only living organisms are morally considerable, ought, ought to be brought into the moral community. So if biocentrism is, is correct, then not only the welfare of deer and bear and snakes must be taken into our moral deliberations, but we'd also need to think about the welfare of plants and non-sentient animal life. Now... <clears throat> The, the reason I don't think this is this is even if you and I, I think that view is completely untenable, <laughs> but e- so but even if it is, even if biocentrism turns out to be correct, and I am completely wrong about sentientism, the welfare of non-sentient organisms don't fare any better in the wilderness than sentient organisms. Their lives are no less perilous uh, or, or short and frequently wretched than than the lives of wild animals. That your your house plant in your living room very likely is. If you even think it makes sense to talk about that plant faring well or living a good life, is very likely living a better life because it's a house plant in your living room than than if it uh, was out in the wild, where the struggle for existence is just as real for non sentient life as it is for for sentient life. So, uh, to the extent that the OFW is on to anything, the the objection from welfare, then biocentrism would just exponentially increase the number of. Uh, uh, or the amount of morally repugnant suffering that's actually furthered by wilderness, and and I think uh, you can make the same point about ecosystem uh, e- ecocentrism. If, if you take ecosystems to be the locus of moral value, and you think ecosystems are morally considerable, then we ought to have some moral concern for ecosystems, and we can just play the same thing out uh, again. So again, I, I don't think either of those two positions are are tenable, but even if they are you still have to do something with the objection from welfare. You still have to think about this preponderance of relentless citrus, and as you point out, perhaps increasing suffering uh, that exists in, 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 in wilderness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, no, I, th- I think what you say about these views is plausible. Um, and it, it strikes me that probably the reason why anyone would have thought otherwise, why anyone might think that ecocentrism and biocentrism um, are support a non a non interventionist sort of view um, would be because people were building in implicitly some some sort of naturocentrism within them, where um, the thought is that well when we say that ecosystems are the locus of moral value what we mean is naturally occurring ecosystems or wild ecosystems, and when we say that light, living individuals in general including non sentient living individuals are morally considerable we mean something like living individuals that came about or were born naturally or something like that. Um, and so when you when you add that stipulation, then yeah, I could see why non-interventionism would, would follow from that because um, we're reducing the amount of naturalness that ecos- ecos- ecosystems have and the naturalness of uh, maybe, I guess, living individuals. But but you really need to build in that naturocentrism in order for these views to turn into uh, non-interventionist views, I think. Kyle, that is—I mean—that's right on the mark. That's exactly what it is. And there's this this often in, implicit um, 
stoic idea of, of nature is good, naturum sequi, just follow nature to the extent that something is natural, then something is good. And, and if you're going to insert that or, or stipulate it, that whatever ecosystem is, so long it, as it's natural, then it is good and it ought to be preserved, that's fine. But that just strikes me as, as rather mm-hmm. dogmatic. Yeah, right. And, and it also suggests that that's what we should be talking about. We should be talking about the value of naturalness or the value of wilderness, which is what your book is about. So it's good that <laughs> that's, good, yeah, that's what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's why I don't, I don't see a, a move to biocentrism or ecocentrism, even if they turn out to be far more plausible than I allow. I don't mm-hmm. think it gets us away from this central question of the, the meaning and value of wilderness and then what to do with the undeniable uh, suffering that exists therein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Okay. So, in, in, in the third chapter of your book, in chapter three, uh, you claim that uh, wilderness as wilderness plausibly possesses a particular kind of anthropocentric, but also intrinsic value. Um, can, you, can you explain this type of value to us, um, as well as why you think it's implausible to claim that wilderness as wilderness possesses other types of value? Yeah, and it might it might be helpful for me here just just to repeat what I'm uh, how I understand wilderness and how I use the term, which is really just in line with the Wilderness Act definition. So it's something like a condition of the natural world, distinguished by a relative absence of human activity, whether that's past or present, intentional or unintentional, conspicuous or or inconspicuous. So anthropocentrism, um, or, or if something is anthropocentric, just focused on human beings, and non-anthropocentric, it could it could apply to others. So if you think about if wilderness has some value, what would it even mean for wilderness to be to have a non-anthropocentric value? Well, <clears throat> you you could consider that some other type of of organism uh, might value the wilderness, and then you'd have to think about what that exactly means. Um, I can't find any reason to even entertain the idea that wilderness, as I've just explained it, is something that is or even could be valued by any other entity that we know of other than human beings. Now, if it turns out that dolphins are far smarter than we think, and they've been thinking about wilderness for quite a long time, and they actually value it as I've just described it, I would be happy to say, well, then I suppose it has a a non-anthropocentric basis. But uh, there seems to be no evidence at the moment for for anything like that. Non-anthropocentrism has has been kind of a touchstone of environmental ethics. The idea is that if, if... if nature, the environment, wilderness uh, only has anthropocentric value, then it only needs to be preserved, protected, cared for, respected, regarded, as long as and to the extent that human beings value it. And, and environmentalists have rightly realized this leaves nature or wilderness in a very dangerous position. But it just seems to be a self-serving move that we that um, certain thinkers have been desperate to ascribe this non-anthropocentric and later intrinsic value to nature, because if you can show that it exists, it's going to be this really good safeguard for the environment. So that even if all humans, present and future, turn out not to value nature or wilderness, and then we don't even need it instrumentally, there would still be some reason to to, to protect and, and respect these areas. So this, this search for intrinsic value um, has led people to, to propose various types. And I identify, I think there's at least four types of intrinsic value that have some purchase in the in the wilderness discussion. And the only one that that I think could could plausibly be ascribed to wilderness is Intrinsic value as as ultimate value. I don't think in, I don't think wilderness is morally considerable. 
uh, because I don't think it's sentient and, and I take a sentientist line in, in the book. I don't think any kind of Morian non-relational value can reasonably be ascribed to wilderness, especially given that most of the values of wilderness are, are deeply relational. Um, it's 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 uh, the rarity of a species or how wilderness stands in relation to to human civilization. And then you know maybe the ultimate holy grail, which is is um, value in the absence of valuers. These these are. This idea is, is argued for by certain environmental philosophers using isolation tests, uh, kind of Morian isolation tests, and very famously the, the last man scenarios. But I, I don't think any of them actually gets you anywhere near establishing the idea that something like wilderness could have value in, in the absence of, of valuers. I do think that wilderness has value. I think it obviously has instrumental value. And I do think it has a kind of intrinsic value. I think it has intrinsic value in the sense of ultimate value. That frequently human beings, myself included, value wilderness simply for its own sake, not because I'm getting natural resources from it, not because it's a good place to hang out with my friends, not because I can I can hide there in the case of political tyranny. I actually just value the wilderness. But I, I, I find no reason to think that it goes beyond an anthropocentric basis or that it could be any other sort of, of intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess the kind of um, value you're talking about there, um, intrinsic value as ultimate value, that's um, that's something we're pretty familiar with in lots of other contexts. Um, so if uh, if I just um, am very interested in certain things because, I don't know, um, I identify with them or something like that, like if I'm a collector and I'm just collecting these cards that matter a lot to me because um, I think of myself as a... Uh, a card, a card person, or something like that, or comic books, or what have you. Um, these things often have that kind of value, right? Is is that? I mm-hmm. think that's the kind of value you're talking about. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, so an example that that I like to use, I, I have an um, an old hunting knife that I inherited from my my grandfather, and. Uh, so if we ask the question, well, does this knife have value? Well, it certainly has instrumental value. I can use it to cut things. I can use it to whittle. I could use it uh, for, for hunting. I suppose I could trade it and get some value for it that way. But that's not the value that the knife actually has for me. I don't I don't use the knife for anything. It, it is not a means to getting anything else. But the knife has value for me, just owning it, possessing it. Um, and I could try to unpack that a bit more. It it reminds me of my grandfather. It makes me feel part of, uh, of some kind of a tradition, but it's not a means to anything else other than the value that I, that I derive from it. So this is a completely familiar concept. And I see no reason to think that, that wilderness doesn't possess that value. Again, I, I can say um, quite confidently it, it it has that value for at least one person, and that's me. <laughs> but but I think it has that value for for many many people. The trouble is that's that's an entirely well. The trouble for certain environmental philosophers is that's an entirely um, anthropocentric type of value. So to the extent that people don't value wilderness or stop valuing it or or, or don't see the ultimate value in it, then it, it it seems like there's one less moral safeguard for the natural world. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Well, um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, in, in your last chapter, the, the final chapter of your book, chapter five, you draw an analogy between bioethics and environmental ethics. Uh, I was hoping you could explain to us uh, this analogy you draw and w- what it has to do with wild animal suffering. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, I think the debate about the value of wilderness is, in, in a really important sense, just a debate about the given over the created or the natural world that human beings were thrown into and have inherited and the world that we might create through human agency. And to me, this, this is almost identical to a fundamental issue in bioethics. So in bioethics, you might say, is there a given human nature, whether it's given by God or chance or evolution or whatever, and should that nature be preserved and should that nature be respected? And we might even say, are we obliged to understand and maintain this nature or are we permitted to augment it? Or you can, you can go a step further, uh, you know, someone, someone like Julian Savalescu uh, might say, actually, we're obliged to augment it. It's not just that we're permitted to. If and when human agency can augment human nature such that it improves human welfare, then we really morally need to do that. So I found that this debate is a bit more developed in bioethics, but but the essence of the question seems to be the same. And and there's also something really odd that I, I don't mention in the book, but maybe it's worth mentioning now. Just in, in my experience, anecdotally, that I found that the same people who are very liberal about bioethics, so transhumanists, for example, tend to be real intense bioconservatives, that, that they're very bullish about tinkering with human nature and, and even moral obligations to do that, but almost have this immediate moral revulsion at the idea of human interference in, in non-human nature. So it may be that there's an important distinction, but it, it may be that there's some inconsistency uh, going on. So I, I end up using Michael Sandel, uh, um, who, who wrote a, a really wonderful little book called The Case Against Perfection. And, and Michael Sandel was invited to be on the President's Commission on, on Bioethics. And Sandel gives what I think is a really eloquent and, and important um, plea for kind of restraint in bioengineering and restraint in trying to exert human domination over human nature. So to the extent that there was any kind of germane analogy between bioethics and debates about wilderness, I wanted to see how well a defense like Sandel's, which, you know, does does a reasonable job uh, uh, arguing against this unrestrained meddling in, in human nature, I wanted to see how that might hold up with the with the argument that maybe we should exercise more restraint in in meddling with non-human nature, even if our meddling is actually meant and, and perhaps even will reduce the amount of suffering that exists in that world. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Well, and and this leads right into uh, into my next question. So, uh, regarding Sandel, um, you um, you take an argument of his of his concerning what he calls the giftedness of life, um, and and you. Uh, you apply it to this um, stuff about wilderness. Um, uh, yes, I was hoping you could talk about that. Um, why you think why you think Sandel's argument provides because you're not you're not entirely you're somewhat critical of Sandel's argument, but not completely. You think it actually does provide some limited support for wilderness preservation. Um, so I was hoping you could explain that. I think it provides very limited. I think I think it does better with with bioethics, and it's not it's not entirely convincing with bioethics. And and he has many critics, but I, I think it provides very limited support. So Sandel fundamentally needs to argue that even if human intervention and human ingenuity could do things that would that would improve the welfare of um, of, of human beings, we'd live longer, we'd be healthier, uh, we'd be taller and handsomer, and and things like that. 
Sandel thinks there's really good reasons not to do this. And it boils down to the value of what he calls the giftedness of life. That's simply taking something as a given, a world that does not come from us, wasn't created by us, isn't controlled by us, exists independent of us in every sense, that to have something like that exist is actually quite important and and quite valuable. So if you try to apply this to to the natural world, in one sense, I agree, because I go back to the, the idea that I am a lover of wilderness. I do not want wilderness, in a certain sense, to be eliminated. I, my own life, my 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 personal life would would be impoverished if there was no more wilderness. But that, but that uh, stating that doesn't get me around the objection from from welfare. So I so I do agree that there's a value in this giftedness of of the world, but it doesn't it doesn't evade the moral problem. And that's sort of uh, what what leads me into the last section of the book, where where I. I do my very best to think of what a what a good apologia for wilderness would be and it it has to be sort of a quasi religious spiritual valuation and i think that's what sandel actually is doing in bioethics though he says that he's not he says he's giving a a perfectly secular non-religious defense of human nature but i think behind it all is is this this implicit spiritual valuation okay great and and that that leads very nicely into my one of my last questions here. Um, so I was hoping you could explain this idea that that wilderness is perhaps best understood as a, a religious or spiritual value, and and also what you think the implications of understanding it as a religious or spiritual value uh, would be, because you think that you, you express some, um, not not exactly reservations, but you you indicate that there are costs associated with understanding it this way. Yeah, I have I have serious reservations with understanding it this way, and I'm I'm to be totally honest, still conflicted about this and still thinking it it through. So I, as I've said, I, I am a wilderness lover and I didn't write this book to trash wilderness in, in any way. I, I wanted to better understand something that I love. And because I'm genuinely morally disturbed by, by what I call the objection from, from welfare. So g- getting to this religious or, or spiritual valuation of wilderness, I, I noticed two things. One, when I started looking back through a lot of prominent nature writers and, and nature philosophers, the way these people often write about and talk about wilderness, they're, they're often explicitly religious and spiritual in the way they describe it and in the way they, they value it, you know, from John Muir on. Um, and then when I looked at, uh, I found some some excellent scholarship going through the, the legislative process and actually passing the, the U.S. Wilderness Act. Uh, some of the strongest arguments to carry the day were these explicitly religious arguments that we needed to preserve wilderness because we were preserving God's land and because this became the Sabbath for the earth. And I mean, it was really explicitly religious. So I I wasn't finding a great way to get around the objection from welfare. But if there is this, this spiritual or religious dimension of wilderness, then it may be possible, and I, I just want to present it as a possibility that needs that needs further thought, to engage in some kind of Kierkegaardian teleological suspension of the ethical, where you don't say, "Look, ethics doesn't matter, suffering doesn't matter. I don't care about about um, uh, uh, about all the horrible, ceaseless death that that's going on," but you say it just might be that that there's another category that you know for kierkegaard it's the, the religious above above the ethical and there may be certain domains of valuation where if you try and cash it out 
in very cold, utilitarian, hedonistic terms, not only are you not going to understand, you're not going to get the right valuation, but but you'd almost be obligated to destroy that that which you value. So it 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 could be that someone could could mount a defensive wilderness by saying you're simply using the wrong category, that you're thinking about this in terms of the ethical rather than in terms of of the religious. In the same way that um, you know there. Uh, whatever the 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 value of of the holy of holies or the inner sanctum of a temple is or or any church it's not just cashed out in the in the dollar value of the bricks and the mortar and the stained glass windows the value somehow greatly exceeds that and it's not just the amount of of uh, of hedonistic enjoyment that that a that a church can provide its parishioners it's it's something beyond that the reason I think this is a particularly dangerous strategy is then you're in a situation of saying, once again, there's this anthropocentric kind of value that does seem to be predicated on unspeakable and appalling suffering. And then we might maintain that system because the sort of value we get from it, even if we want to call it religious, is just so important to us that we want to let it keep going even in the face of this suffering um, okay, well, um, yeah, that it seems reasonable to <laughs> to worry about, um, about understanding wilderness that way. Um, I mean, I know I know in the book you you talk about public reason a little bit, um, which is a concept from political philosophy, and um, you point out that if if this is the kind of value that wilderness is, if it's um, a, a religious value, um, well, then it so first of all, it seems like it, that's that's not a public reason. That's something that maybe applies to wilderness wilderness well lovers or we could call them worshipers if they're if they're religious <laughs> um but it's not something that you can like bring out in the public arena and say well look uh, here's a reason for other people too to care about the preservation of wilderness it's only it's only going to be something that's accessible to fellow um fellow wilderness lovers um, yeah and in, a, in yeah. a deliberative democracy that that also concerns me um I, I i mean i have great respect for religion and i want to make space for religion but you i think you do need to understand that that if you slip into that world of the religious and the ineffable and the idea that these uh, these ideas are not um translatable into into public reason on some sort of Rawlsian uh principles then it's not clear what debates about the future of wilderness look like if you just claim no look it's got a religious value leave it alone mm-hmm. yeah um, okay, so one, I, I don't, I, I suppose we haven't actually uh, talked about this yet. So may, maybe I should, maybe I should ask about it. Um, you, okay, so you, you think we have pretty strong reasons to intervene in the wilderness um, in order to increase wild animal welfare. Um, what, what do you think? Do you, do you have any opinion about what the best way to intervene is to to increase wild animal welfare? Is there something you'd be willing to defend regarding that? Well, what I say is that I think we have a very, a very strong pro tanto reason. Um, and by that, I, I, I just mean um, well. Here, here's an example that I, I use in the book that I take from from someone else. The if a joke is funny, that's a pro tanto reason to tell it. If the joke is also deeply offensive to someone you care about, that's a that's a countervailing reason, maybe not to tell the joke. <laughs> so I, I I did want to try and establish. That I think there's a very strong pro tanto reason to intervene in wilderness, if and to the extent that our intervention will reduce the suffering without having. Um, uh, additional undesirable side effects. So, as to how we would do that, this this is something I don't have a, a great deal of insight on. Um, I, I have I have some friends and colleagues who are strong proponents of of population control, 
through sterilization. Uh, uh, particularly, I, I have someone who works on, on on this with deer and thinks a lot about managing of of wild and urban deer populations through that. I'm also pretty interested in in germline. The, the the people who have talked about the potential for germline genetic modification of transitioning predators carnivores in into herbivores now you, you mentioned that around any group of biologists or environmental activists or environmental scientists and and they just they look like you're in or they look at you like you're insane um but but i i do find that a a, a fascinating line to take mm-hmm. yeah yeah so I, I mean i guess you're i guess you you there are various tentative ideas that you think are promising but you're not willing to really uh, argue for any particular one of them. You just think there are whichever ones are most likely to be effective. We should maybe do research them or something. Yeah, yes, I, I think that's fair. So I, I don't have a strong activist stance that comes out of this book, and that's not because I'm trying to be apathetic or that I enjoy being a, a fence sitter. And part of it is because there's quite a bit more I think that I need to <laughs> think through. I'm also, well, you know, presumably you don't publish a book if you're not fairly convinced by some of what you said, um, but. I am uh, ho- hopefully have enough humility that I would like to wait and see what some other people think of this. And there's always the chance that I am badly wrong about one or two things. So before I go off on some sort of half-baked activist agenda, because I think I have sorted all, <laughs> sorted this all out, um, I I think I need to hear, hear uh, what other folks have to tell me in response to what I've tried to articulate. Right. Okay. So maybe the thing you'd advocate for is just um, more philosophical research i guess um we should sure. think, we need to think about this more what what i would love <laughs> uh is if if there is a, a much better defense of wilderness or understanding of wilderness uh i would love for someone to tell me why i'm wrong i would really really love that now if if um if it turns out that that this line of thought and I'm, I, there are many people ha- who have who have proposed something like this uh, does seem to be the best understanding we have, given our, our current understanding of the world, then I do think it's time to move towards some sort of activist program and begin thinking about ways to to lessen wild animal suffering. That's not my expertise, but how that would, how actually we would go about doing that, and that becomes a very different sort of question that perhaps philosophers aren't always the, the best people um, to, to ask. But what's, what's interesting though, is that the people who you might need to talk to, um, biologists and zoologists are often deeply, deeply resistant to the conversation that you and I have just been having. Um, that, or at least that's been my experience. Uh, I, I was a, a fellow at a center where I had a desk next to an environmental scientist and a biologist and a zoologist. And to even try and explain to them this kind of line of thinking, they were just horrified and didn't want to hear any of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I guess, it's it's hard to know how um, how useful philosophical research can be for changing people's attitudes. It sort of requires that people be willing to read a lot of philosophy. Um, but it's as you know, it's been useful in the past. Sometimes um, uh, I think it was because perhaps because of philosophy, at least in part, that ideas like liberal democracy eventually became entrenched and um, the you know the norm for for how for how we understand legitimate political governance. I mean there was a time when liberal democracy was a terribly controversial idea. <laughs> so, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I I I think philosophical investigation and argument can be incredibly influential. I mean, I I don't want to downplay that one bit. I mean, if even if you want to look at what's happening on the level of environmental activism or or climate justice, 
you just got to take a bit of a longer view and go back a couple generations and you have somewhat radical philosophers making arguments in journals that struck most of the general public as utterly ridiculous, but they stick at it and 30 years of really refining and hammering these arguments and and challenging people to give a response. If you don't like these arguments, if this isn't the way to go, then, then give us a response. And when none is forthcoming, that's when I think political action start, starts to take hold. So um, I don't have any particular recommendation in terms of direct action right now, but that is, it's um, it's not at all because I don't think either some ought to be forthcoming or because I think I think philosophy is impotent in this, quite, quite the opposite. I think this is the first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, I, I agree. Um, okay, well, th- thanks for thanks for talking to me, Josh. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I, I'd like so I'd like to thank you again for for joining us to talk about your book, uh, Wilderness Morality and Value, uh, which I'll remind everyone was was published earlier this year by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, the only other question I have for you is whether you're currently working on any projects, and and if you are, uh, what are they? Uh, I am, and and, and let, let me say thank you so much for having me on. I I am grateful to be here, and I really enjoyed this. So I am working on a project. It's it's quite a different project. I'm um, I'm I'm trying to work through the norms of statue removal. So um, <laughs> very quickly, there's there's been a lot of uh, debate recently about whether statues, certain statues, should stay up or certain statues should come down, and most of the discussion about it seems to be um, heated and dogmatic and and fairly uninformed. And I thought it would be interesting to see if uh, what would happen if an analytic philosopher tried to carefully work through uh, the, the norms associated with this. And my, my starting premise is just this. Some statues ought to come down and some ought to stay up. So how do we figure out which ones, why, and when? Okay. Uh, ha- have you uh, have you any tentative conclusions concerning like what criteria we can use to distinguish between statues that should stay up and those which should should stay down? Or, or not stay down, uh, be knocked down rather. <laughs> I'm going to say it's too preliminary just yet. I, I have reached some conclusions, but I haven't worked out the arguments, and I'm uh, I'm always hesitant to uh, to give the thesis before I can give a good reason. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, well, that's a good that's a good project and a very topical one. Um, okay. Great. Well, yeah. Thanks again. Thanks again for uh, uh, participating in this interview, Josh. It's been great talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you.